Covenant member. One of the newest ones. Um, the passage today is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. It's on page 810 in the Black Bibles. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Morning. My name is Kent. I'm a pastor here as well at Soma. And I would love it if you prayed with me before we dive into this. Father God, uh, Lord, we uh, step into the flow of something that you have been not only creating, not only overseeing, not only stepping into yourself, but are inviting us into since, since the dawn of creation. Lord, you are asking us to step into the epic, long relationship between the light of the world and the darkness of the world. And Lord, in that we confess that none of us come clean. None of us come as being born in the light and therefore living in the light and therefore being now walking in the light. But we come as former participants, former, and in some ways still present parts of our lives participating in the darkness. And so, Lord, we don't want to be uh, deaf to that reality that that is where we come out of, but we also don't want to be deaf to your ability to create light in the midst of darkness. That's literally what you've been doing since the world began. And what you love to do, what you do just out of an embodiment of who you are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us how you are creating in us the ability to be the light of the world, in the midst of the darkness of the world, in the midst of being former and sometimes present participants in the darkness of the world. Lord, show us beyond just clever phrases and catchy alliterative terms, but show us on how we would implement being the light of the world, not on Sunday mornings, but on Monday mornings, on Friday nights, and in the day-to-day grind of work, marriage, singleness, wherever we might find ourselves. So Lord, uh, your spirit has to do the work that I cannot do, which is make this real and tangible and applicable to everyone's life in specific ways. And I pray that you would be doing that. I pray that you would be guiding people's hearts and minds and be giving ideas to our minds to say, this is how I want you to be the light starting this afternoon. This is how I want you to be the light of the world tomorrow morning. This is how I want you to be the light of the world for the next 60, 70, however many years you would give us. So Lord, we joyfully give that burden to you, and therefore we step out from under it, and I pray that you would empower the work of your body, as you promised to do, and as it gives you glory. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, I set up this section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the series that we're in right now, the two parts that were read today, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, as 
comparing it or likening it to a pep talk or a pump-up speech, which some of you may have found that to be a lame analogy, but I kind of think of it's an accurate one because allow me to reset up what I did for last week on Salt of the Earth, which is what we looked at then, and, and reapply it now to Light of the World. Because Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, as he comes out of his Beatitudes, his intro to his revolutionary sermon of showing who's going to be blessed when his kingdom uh, steps into this world as it is doing the moment he steps onto the earth, he then says as his last Beatitude, hey, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted for my namesake and for my righteousness, that my kingdom as it deposes the former kingdom is going to make waves. And the disciples and everyone else listening, which was many, were not stupid and they weren't gluttons for punishment as some people feel Christians should be, that we should be ones that just like desire pain and that is holy somehow. But Jesus is not asking them to be gluttons for punishment. Rather, he's saying, hey, no, you're going to be persecuted. That's just a reality by being called to my name. But blessed are you. You actually will receive some of the deepest blessing when there are those who oppose you. And, and we went into that at length and don't have time to go into that right now. That was two weeks ago. And then to the disciples, to the people listening, he says, hey, not only will you be blessed, but I want you to turn around and not run. This isn't the time to start hiving yourself off, clustering yourself off, trying to find protection in an insulated existence in the church away from the world and away from that which might attack you. And I want you to instead turn about face and charge towards the world that you are now, that you've always been, and I'm sending you, I'm pulling you out of and sending you back to. And so he does that with two vivid metaphors that would have been articulately vivid in their days, which we are trying to now, these two weeks, bring out all that is loaded into them. One being the salt of the earth. Again, that was last week, and I don't have time to recap it. I didn't even have time last week to preach it all. So you got to grab the podcast if you want that, because it actually is important to kind of hold these together. And then this week, he focuses on the light of the world. And in his speech, as he moves towards the light of the world, he cues us into what all pump-up speeches, pep talks are geared towards. They are all pointing a person or a group of people towards several realities, but one of them is an opposition or a rivalry or an enemy. And you may not have caught it. It's not immediately jumping out at you in this text, but he has just made nod implicitly to the enemy that you're going to charge up against. Now, before I get like into the meat of what I'm talking about, let me just tell you where I'm going um, because it alliterates, and I'm always proud when it alliterates, and I want to get credit for it. So um, here's where we're going. We are going to look at this text, and we're going to let it reveal the rival implicit in the text, and we are then going to receive the role of the light of the world. So revealing the rival, receiving the role that's our work. Two points. If you're used to three points, you get a discount sermon this week. Doesn't mean I'll go short, though. Um, didn't in the nine. So either way, working on that right now. Let's get into revealing the rival that is implicit in this text. Because again, you may not have initially, it doesn't leap out at you, unless you're like, well, now, Kent, actually, Jesus already tipped the cards. I mean, he already said that, hey, you're going to be persecuted on my namesake. He's already laid out that there are going to be people who oppose us. But here's the reality that the Bible in Ephesians 6 is going to say that you are not fighting against flesh and blood in this world. That never when you are persecuted is your enemy the other person on the other side of the conversation or the other side of the sword. That you, that that person, it says, is closer to your sibling, your brother or sister, than your enemy. 
That there is someone that you are going up against, though, and it has several creative titles all throughout the scriptures. In Ephesians 6, my favorite is the powers of darkness in this world. Because that is what God is implicitly saying, what Jesus is implicitly saying when he says, hey, you are the light of the world. You should not miss the idea that there is also darkness in this world. And God has been at rival towards it since literally page, verse 1 and 2 of our scriptures. In fact, I'd love to flip and show you some things that I saw in the very first verses of our Bible that I had never seen before until I looked through the eyes of the rivalry of light and dark. Um, So if you want to keep a finger in Matthew 5 and just go to the very first page of your Bible, and I can say that authoritatively. I don't care what you have. It is the first page of your Bible, what we are working off of. Genesis 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, that's really confusing in a number of ways. We actually went through a series in Genesis, and we went through this portion of this text, and we even said, like, it's tough to kind of, like, know what to do with the fact that, like, God is, like, creating the world, but yet there's already apparently waters, and there's a formless void and darkness, and so there seems to be already some components there, including water, uh, that he is over. And, And I would simply say this, there is a lot of mystery in Genesis 1, a lot of mystery. That Genesis 1, I would argue, is not primarily a text claiming how God created the world. I don't think that's its intent. I think it's rather trying to get you to marvel at the God that would create a world. That God is a good God who takes formlessness and creates form and order. He takes chaos and he creates beauty. And he takes darkness and creates light. And that's what he's going to do in verse 3. He's going to say, and God said, let there be light And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. So let me lay out a couple of realities that, again, I had never seen before until this week. That God creates light. Apparently there was, in this poetic accounting, a pre-existing darkness there. And in that... He calls the light good, but he doesn't call the darkness good. He doesn't call night good for whatever reason. And then he separates the two. He divides them, which is reminiscent of Jesus telling a parable of that on the final day in judgment that there will be a time where God separates those at his right hand and those at his left. And the right, he will say, come into my eternal rest and my eternal joy, my eternal paradise. And to the left, he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. That in the very first five verses of the scriptures, you get the whole story in a microcosm. God creates and is sovereign and is powerful. Darkness is present. And so God will then create light and push back darkness. And then of the darkness, he will judge and pass it away. You get all of what the rest of the story is going to fold out in five verses. And you get the introduction into the age-old battle of darkness. Now, 
you might be like, okay, what's, what's the big deal about darkness? Like, what does, what does Jesus not like about light? I mean, I get that it's a metaphor, and I get that there's a problem here, but still, if we're just, like, talking physically, like, he just didn't call the night good, like, day was good, but night is bad, like, this is like, you know, your mom who, like, says, like, nothing good happens past 10 p.m., and it's not uh, Jesus being uh, prudish or uh, weird about just certain times of day. In fact, there's other times where the Bible's going to talk about the peace of night and the peace of sleep that God can give and rest that he gives. In fact, you might be one here like, you live for the night. I mean, you don't get anything done productive while the sun is up. In fact, the fact that you're here is like fantastic. You just like nailed it for the day and you're going to kick this week in the butt because you actually showed up while daylight was going on. So good for you. Uh, and I know that there's even some of you here that like literally you don't get any work done in the night because you like clock in when it's dark. When all of us go to sleep, I mean, we have so many night shift nurses, more than you could stir a stick with in this congregation, to which I would just say, bless you because you are going against the creative design of all of humanity and serving people. So bless you, and may God put the wind at your back. That is tough. But either way, again, you might be a night owl. You might enjoy the relational nature of what happens at night. I mean, night is when we stop working, typically, and is when we rest, when we sleep, when we uh, engage in the joys of just being, uh, being and not working, just existing and being with others. And, and this, to get all of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the light of the world, like last week with salt, you need to step into the mindset of an ancient Near Eastern person and think about what they think when they think night and dark. Because you've got to get out of night in 2018 Indianapolis. Because again, last, not again, I guess, the last couple of weeks, We've had so much snow on the ground. It's like that thing. I mean, I love it, actually, when it's like it, the sun never sets sort of thing. It just kind of feels like the sun goes down, but there's so much light reflecting off the snow, like you could read a book on your, your front lawn with no lights. And I love that time. But obviously, we know, I mean, I'm guessing a number of us kind of know the amount of light pollution that happens in a city. And so you know, yes, but if I get into some, like, crevice of you know, some rocky area down in southern Indiana. I can see the stars much more brilliantly than anybody else can. And you can, but even that's affected by light pollution. You cannot be on the ground of U.S. soil and not have some amount of light that would not have been experienced there. I mean, I'm talking about in a pre-electric society where there is no lights on at night, they might, you know, they make reference to having lamps, that they could light those. But still, out in the wilderness, the darkness is so total, you cannot see your hand moving in front of your face. And so, night and darkness means a few things to them. First of all, it means they're vulnerable. It means that danger, typically, I mean, they're in a desert climate, but as many know, um, deserts are dry climates, and they experience extreme temperatures. And so, it gets really hot, but it also gets really cold when there's no sun. And so it's cold, it's vulnerable, it's danger, and evil, as it does now, did then. It finds itself more able to flourish when people can't see as well. I mean, that's true, again, as I said, not just of their day. I mean, that's true of ours. I mean, if you have a crime that happens at 12 noon, there will be in the report a stark audacious claim that this happened in broad daylight. Because we know there's something to evil, and not only just evil out there, evil within us. 
I don't know you. I don't know your darkest moments metaphorically. But I'm guessing a lot of them happened when it was physically dark outside. There's just something about the lights being low that allows us to feel like we're more hidden. It's why they keep the lights low in strip clubs. It's not just to focus all attention to the front stage. It doesn't matter what room you're in. The lights are low to make subjugating women feel less palpable in the moment. And so we have a similar sense on light. I mean, in fact, right now uh, we're having conversations with our three-year-old and we have always just like, this has been our position. We've just always like just We're going to see if he ever needs a nightlight, and we're just going to put him in darkness since the day he was born. He'll never know a day when he didn't uh, sleep in darkness. And so our two older boys sleep in pitch black. Until like three weeks ago, out of nowhere, he says, as I reach for the light, Daddy, it's going to be scary when you turn the light out. But he's like, again, he's never not slept in darkness. He's never had a nightlight. He doesn't watch scary movies. Like, there's not a lot that he has to, like, build a possible imaginary monster out of. And yet he's now, every night, Daddy, it's going to be scary when you turn out the light. And so we caved. We started doing, like, a little tiny nightlight, to which now we can point to it and be like, hey, buddy, you got that light, and God is sovereign. He's here protecting you. And Mommy and Daddy are across the hall. I mean, there's really very little problems going on right now. Like, it's pretty unlikely something bad's going to happen to you right now. Uh, we're working on his rational mindset on um, all this. And either way, he knows that there's something scary about the dark. And I know this as an adult, and I know it because it's how I watch scary movies. I am fascinated by scary movies. I think there's something that draws me to them, but I cannot handle them. Uh, and so I, I watch them in the middle of the day with the remote in my hand five minutes at a time. And... I, li- that's li- I mean, you can talk to my wife, and this is what I've been doing. I've been watching a movie over the last several weeks, and I just start it, and I just sit there, like, standing, and it's got to be, like, bright daylight. I mean, it's got to just be, like, sun's got to... If it's cloudy, it's too much. And so, and I just sit there, and I'm just like, that is enough right there. Okay. Oh, gosh. And, whoa. Oh, man. And so I just feel safer because it's not pitch dark right there because we, as... Adults know there's something about I'm more in control. I'm more able to assess the situation. I feel more safe with light. So darkness in our culture and theirs, it, it takes on metaphoric meanings of evil, of injustice, of depression. I mean, a lot of you who have suffered through seasons of depression, I'm sure you articulated to somebody It just feels like everything's dark. I feel like my heart has gone dark. In death, I mean, at death, you lose color. You become less vibrant. You fade to ash. Slowly, you turn to dust. Darkness, sometimes in a symbolic display of art, will just be a person becoming darkened to show death. And... When I start to think about like how darkness gets portrayed in our culture, because again, I think it's really easy. I don't think I have to do a lot of work. I've probably already done more work for this explanation than you probably needed to go along with me. But I see it even more vibrantly uh, when I think about Stranger Things. And uh, I actually used this exact analogy on our Christmas Eve service. Uh, So if you were here, uh, which was like six of us, because you all go to other places for Christmas. So six of us were very 
congealed and, and our hearts were warmed by this analogy. Uh, but it didn't make the podcast because we didn't podcast our Christmas Eve service for whatever reason. So it's fresh material for the majority of the room. Uh, either way, uh, and let me just say this. I'll give you the same spiel that I gave to them then. There's always people that freak out when I talk about modern stories, like things that you could watch right now and maybe haven't watched right now or maybe will watch right now. So let me just say two things. First of all, to the person who hasn't seen it and just like, it's not going to make sense. I'm not, I don't want to watch Stranger Things. I don't care about scary movies or scary things. I don't want to deal with them. And so I don't think I'm going to be able to follow you. I will give you the tools of that you need to follow my metaphor. Okay, we, I w- we're not going deep. And then secondly, to the person who's like, I'm planning to watch, but like I'm doing a TV fast or a Netflix fast through January, and then I was like planning February 1, and so don't spoil and ruin it for me, Pastor Man. Um, I would just say, I think, you know, we're going to be okay. Again, we're going to go on the surface. Because just to kind of get basic details out there, this is a story about middle school-aged children in southern Indiana, which, because for whatever reason, southern Indiana is hot right now in Hollywood. We are fascinated with your life if you came from southern Indiana. And southern Indiana, middle school-aged youth, and they discover what is called in the show the Upside Down, which is an alternative universe to their own, which functions almost exactly like their own. Everything is in the same place. If the school is there, then on the upside down, it's literally like if you could turn the world upside down, everything would be there, except it's always cold, and it's always dark, and monsters that kill are lurking constantly. And it puts forward, what, for whatever reason, I just maybe it's because I watched it recently, uh, but it's also just because we've like talked about the Sermon on the Mount. I keep getting that image of the show in my head of what Jesus maybe even had in his mind when he started the sermon. And actually, I know that because if you want to flip back to Matthew 5 and actually flip back a page to 809, Matthew 4, at the very beginning of the sermon, Right before Jesus starts preaching, these words are quoted from the book of Isaiah. The land of Zebulun, this is uh, verse 15 of Matthew 4. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, uh, and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And then he kicks off what will be then his ministry by preaching just one sentence. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which is another way of saying, rethink everything. I'm turning things upside down or right side up for the first time because my kingdom is here. And so as I held these two things together, it started to make sense that I mean, this whole light-dark thing, I mean, God very much so steps into this when he describes himself through uh, writers in the scriptures. In, in 1 John 1, 5, you don't have to turn there. I'll just refer to these uh, couple here. It says, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And in 1 Timothy 6, it says, God dwells in unapproachable light. You can't get near him because of the intensity of light that he lives in. And it's why Jews had a festival every single year. It was called the Festival of Booths. They would go out and live in the wilderness and build booths for themselves. 
And it was to picture the time when they wandered in the wilderness, when God pulled them out of slavery, out of darkness, and had them wander through the wilderness and guided them. And in the wilderness, again, pre-electric world, I mean, this is where they would have experienced utter, total darkness. But God provided for them in that. And he literally leads them by day as a cloud of smoke and by night a pillar of fire, illuminating night. Very clearly saying, you are my people and I will lead you and take you to life, to freedom, to where you were designed to go. And so they would then remember that time by going out in the wilderness, recreating the booths for a week, and every single day they would participate in the festival of water. But every single night they would participate in the festival of lights in which they would get big bowls of oil and light them ablaze. And men would get torches and dance with torches in the streets. They would light up the wilderness so that it would be brighter than a snowfallen night in a post-modern world. Because they were trying to communicate, they were trying to remember, hey, God led us in light. And all throughout Isaiah, it says, hey, the light is coming. But it also says this, the problem is the darkness is in you. Because that's where, like, again, I think maybe the Stranger Things analogy breaks down on us. Because in that role, we cast ourselves as the middle school kids who are fighting back the creatures of the underground. But Isaiah is clear, you are the monsters. The people of God were the monsters and all the people of the earth. The Bible says that in our rebellion towards God, our hearts just go dark. And yes, you might not physically devour people, but you metaphorically will devour people. If they get in your way, you will speak about them in such a way to take them down. Or you unwittingly, or maybe wittingly, but just uncaringly participate in in systems that prop up the few and subjugate the many. Or simply you just have a anger in you that comes out in a dog-eat-dog-eat world and you devour people. Again, not literally, but very much so actually. Because we, we are the monsters in the story. We need to cast ourselves appropriately in the metaphor. And that's what Isaiah kept saying over and over again. It wasn't a popular message. Got him killed amongst his contemporaries. Because it's never popular to constantly say, hey, there's a problem in this, in this world, and it's all of us. And so, every year they would go out, they'd light the bowls, they'd be dancing, they'd be crazy, everything would be lit, and on the last, I mean, actually lit, not just like figuratively lit. I just realized, I just, whoa, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting cool. All right, <laughs> here we go. Uh, so yeah, it'd be a lit party, and uh, I, now I'm not cool, because uh, I addressed it. Uh, all right, well, fair enough. Um, so yeah, they, everything would be, uh, a blaze, and it would be in a fever pitch on the last night, and people would be going crazy. I mean, the dancing would be almost like pagan-like in the way that they would just be worshiping the fact that God was light and that he had come, and he's coming again. And then the year Jesus goes to the festival, he stands up when everything's going crazy, and he stands under probably the central bowl that they lit everything from. And I'm guessing everybody hushed because apparently everyone heard him say, 
I am the light of the world. Anyone who comes to me will not walk in darkness, but they will receive the light of life. Also an unpopular message. Also got him killed. But he says, hey, I am the light of the world. And catch what he didn't say. He didn't say, I know about the light of the world. He didn't say, I could show you the light of the world. If you live an example of my life, you will live the light of the world. He didn't say, I'm selling or peddling the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. And that's important because it makes all the difference of how you receive the gospel. Are you someone who is just exampling your life after Jesus, who said, follow me and be like the light of the world? Or are you realizing that is impossible and the only way for you to step into the light is to recognize that you are in the darkness and to come to Jesus, who is the light of the world, and he's the one who eradicates the darkness in your life. I mean, that's First John chapter 1. I, I read part of it, but I have the whole of the text. If you toss it up there on the screen, it says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. People always freak out about that text because they think, oh man, walk in the light as he is in the light. That, does that mean like walk in moral purity and perfection as he walks in moral purity and perfection? Not at all. The light metaphor is meant to be that, exactly that, a light metaphor. And what does light do? It's not the thing that purifies you. It shows you where you need to be purified. And it allows you to step out and come to the one who is the light, the blood of Jesus, who his righteousness is what cleanses you. His righteousness is what brings you into the family. His righteousness, not your own, not anything you do, is what makes you the light of the world. And so as he sets that up, he then asks you to receive the role. We're moving from revealing the rival to receiving the role of the light of the world, which, if you think about it, is a little bit crazy. Because it makes sense, like, okay, Jesus stands up and he's a little bold and he's a little audacious, and he says at the ceremony, the festival of lights, I am the light of the world. Anyone who comes to me will not walk in darkness, but will receive the light of life. But Jesus can pull that off. I mean, he gets killed, yes, but he can still, I mean, he is the son of God. But now in Matthew 5, in his sermon, he has now just said the same thing that is true of me. The fact that I am the light, I am the objective truth that is now pointing to the one thing that they all need, which is me. I am now inviting you to take on that same moniker. I am now inviting you to claim to be and think of yourself as the light of the world. We need to define a couple things real quick before you hear that real wrong and apply this in a really afflicted way. You are not the savior of the world. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek at all. I say that for real because I think that no, many of you would not say that. You function in your relationships, particularly the relationships that you desire that they might come to know Jesus as that. You don't save people. Jesus saves people. You don't choose who gets saved. Jesus chooses who gets saved. Now you are invited to pray for people, to live compellingly before people, 
to preach the gospel persuasively and winsomely to people. But in that moment, if they choose to have faith and believe, it is because of what the Holy Spirit through Jesus' blood is doing in them. And you were a joyful messenger, but you need to receive no weight to save their soul and no condemnation when it, if and when it does not happen. I mean, that, that will not only free you from feeling due condemnation, I think it actually will embolden you. I mean, you'll become like Paul in the book of Acts, who was regularly preaching, though he was persecuted and left for dead outside of cities, and he would come back because God had told them, hey, Paul, keep showing up and preaching the gospel, because there's many in that city who will come to know my name. In fact, I have called them by their name. Not like, hey, there's some people, if you work really hard, they might be on the fence. There are people, I know their names, I know their addresses, I know the time of day, I know the word that's going to come out of your mouth that's going to make it click for them. And so just now, what's your role? Go and just boldly preach the word. It will have effect. I've already guaranteed it. I've already gone before you. It could be a moment in our lives to realize, man, you can't mess this up. You can't have a lack of knowledge or a lack of ability to answer their questions or uh, an unwinsome way or, man, if I just would have lived a little bit better. I mean, yes, God is, uh, Jesus is going to come and say, hey, live a winsome life before people. But I think there's a lot of pressure to be relieved in knowing, hey, you can step out boldly into these relationships because you can't fail at this. You are merely being invited to play in the game of saving souls for eternity. And so you are not the Messiah, you are not the Savior, but you are the light of the world. And I think what Jesus is trying to get at here is simply this. Jesus leaves earth, and he says, hey, it's good for you that I go away because I'm going to send someone who is a helper, an advocate for you, and we know that is the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's no coincidence that when the Holy Spirit drops, he comes as a divided flaming tongue falling upon all these people, all the disciples, a flaming tongue in which gives light. And then As they receive that, they probably at some point remember the moment where Jesus earlier in his ministry says, hey, you're going to do far greater things than I ever did. Which, if you just take that for like, okay, does that mean like, I mean, he did like miracles. So like if the the benchmark is like bringing dead people back and feeding 5,000 people with Lunchables, I'm not walking very obediently to Jesus right now. Yes, that would be very crushing. I don't think exactly that's what he's saying. However, I don't think miracles are off the table. In fact, I'm very much so a believer that they are happening through the church today. But I think what he's saying is, hey, you're going to do far greater things. Because as much as Jesus, I mean, he did miracles, he had teaching, he died on the cross and rose again, and it never made it out of the region. Because he says, hey, I'm not taking this out of the region. I'm, that's not the way we're getting this out. I'm not going on now a 70-year ministry where I heal everyone and I show everyone the power of God. You're going to do that. You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Translation, here. Or the Middle East. Or India or South America. That is the ends of the earth to them because this is a Middle Eastern religion. It's actually gone and now it might be going back in some ways. And so when he says, hey, I'm going to use you, it's not because he wants less glory. It's not because that's less hard. It's because he wants more glory and it's more difficult. I mean, that's actually, if you go back to our actual text, I'm actually going to get there. And I'm going to start in the last verse, verse 16. 
It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That, that the work that you do, the, the spreading of the kingdom that we now do, that we now join in the ancient rivalry of pushing back darkness, that will bring glory to God. And a couple things to be said about that. First of all, you can try to use this to bring glory to yourself. And let's be real, lots of people have. Lots of people who have stood in this position have. And I, I think a lot of them started with good motives, and I think are Christians, but for a moment, all of a sudden just realized, hey, I, I'm trying to use the right verbiage of this is for the glory of Christ, but all of the systems point people back to me. And the problem is, is that you were never meant to hold all the weight of the glory. You don't have to be a pastor to receive that. I just want to confess that because I'm not saying like, oh, that's the other people. No, that darkness can be in my heart and probably resides in my heart. And probably I've tried to do it and maybe it's gotten thwarted and maybe in some ways you can observe some blind spots where it hasn't. But you don't have to be a pastor to stand and, and stand in that role, that you can try to use the glory of God to bring glory to yourself. It doesn't work long term because you're not glorious. I mean, you are weak and vulnerable. I said last week that people always beat up on the church, and I get really sick of it because the church is a really soft target. Because the whole idea that you're a mess and you need someone to save you tends to attract the, le- the weak and the lonely and the undesirables. I mean, I pray that our church will always have people that are frustrating and difficult and annoying and... Welcome to church, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's not backhanded. I guess it is. All right. But I pray that there would always be people that you just roll your eyes at and say, I can't believe they go to Soma Church. And I pray that someone's doing that towards you. Because it means that we're actually being the church and we're actually attracting the people that I believe will be most attracted to the gospel message. It means that we're, pe- we're preaching it pretty accurately. And so... It's part of the reason that I always want to preach really vulnerably. I never want people to get the impression of like, okay, you got this figured out and now you just nail it and walk with Jesus every day. I want you to regularly know, no, I am failing daily and I'm holding on to Jesus daily and our staff and our deacons and our elders would not have the guts to stand up here if we thought we had to bear the image of we have it down, now follow us. And so we rest our souls in the fact that I can preach though I sinned against my wife and family in the midst of writing my sermon this week because I'm clinging on to a savior and pointing you to the one who has saved me. And that is your role. And then God uses the church. And and some people just use that to be like, man, the church is so, like, I don't like Jesus because the church. And they say things about like, this is true about Jesus. But what you really hear is like, no, that was like a judgmental grandmother or that was a really like rolling of the eyes coworker or somebody in their youth group that just miscommunicated Jesus to them. But again, the church probably, again, is going to be filled with people that are constantly getting this wrong. And the fact that Jesus used the church, again, is really beautiful. Because writing cloud messages in the sky is really easy compared to using broken people to spread the kingdom of God. I mean, it's exactly like how I used to spread the dominance and the gospel of Kent's basketball skills when I substitute taught in a preschool. 
And I used to, before I was a pastor, I was um, a sometimes in-work, sometimes out-of-work actor and a substitute teacher. And when I substitute taught, I was regularly called in to be in the preschool because they just didn't have any males uh, connected to there. And a lot of people in general just weren't willing to go into the preschool. But I actually liked it because in like high school or middle school, they just said like, just like give them, pass out the worksheet, turn on the video and just make sure they all stay in the confines of the room. But like in preschool, you actually can pick up the lesson plan and be like, oh, okay, I can teach this today. Because it's not like, oh gosh, colors. I haven't used it in so long. Um, (laughs) you You can get in the flow and you can help them, you know? But during my tenure of substituting regularly, sometimes daily for weeks on end at this preschool, uh, in the middle of the winter when it was like it's been, they would have indoor recess. And uh, during that time, some of the boys uh, would come around and want to play basketball with Mr. Kent. And some uh, very well intending and very encouraging adults out there have the philosophy of I'm going to, you know, let them shoot it in and let them build their confidence and, you know, let them kind of grow and nurture their, their self-image. Um, not my philosophy. And if you're going to beat Mr. Kent, it's because you worked the passing, you didn't settle for the good shot, you got the great shot, you pump faked, and you hit the 15-foot open jumper. Because if you don't get open, I will Dikembe Mutombo, your three-year-old piney, all stinking day. So I, I have no mercy. In fact, at one point, one of the more athletic, basketball-inclined boys, who was one of the older ones and was used to dominating, cried. And uh, <laughs> at that point, I was like, maybe I should lighten up. Uh, but I didn't, and he's better now. Um, <laughs> and the smart kids, the smart ones. They would like figure it out and they'd come on and they'd come on the court and say, I'm on Mr. Kent's team. And most of the time I'd be like, no, 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 Mr. Kent rides alone. Um, but every once in a while I would be like, okay, I will pick a team. And here's my team. I pick the girl that's under two feet tall. I pick the boy who is wet his pants and the other kid who plays only with one hand because his other finger resides constantly in his nose. And I will dribble and dominate and show the sovereignty of Kent's dominating prowess by being such a figure that I get all 50 other boys running at me and toss the pass to the nose-picking kid who was so open that he had time to take seven, eight, nine, ten shots and win the game, not just because I am slam dunking and swatting, but because I can make the weakest among you great. And that is Mr. Kent's philosophy on how you teach substitute preschool. And... In that, God's glory is seen similarly. The church is a representation of the beauty of who God is because look at what he's working with. Look at what he's doing to spread his kingdom now from a small group of about 20 people in the Middle East to now being a place where you can't go to a corner in this country without seeing a cross. And you look all around the world and you will hear the name of Jesus, whether it's to intentionally keep him out of a situation or to intentionally bring him in. Because he's building his kingdom through his church. And in that, he he says, hey, I want you to now become the light of the world. It's how I want to do this. And this is typically where it becomes just a sermon on evangelism. It's not where I want to go because I don't think that's where Jesus goes. He actually says in 16 again, 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, that takes us to a quote that a lot of people love, and I know I've dogged on a couple times, that is supposedly or apparently said by uh, St. Francis of Assisi. As far as we can tell, he probably didn't actually say it, but it goes something effect of preach the gospel every day, if necessary, use words. And we've dogged on that in the past because we're like, you know, I think there's a way to live a beautiful, compelling life, but I think sometimes you just eventually have to say, hey, by the way, it's because of Jesus. Or when people say like, hey, what makes you live compelling? And you're like, uh, I'm just going to love you and uh, freakishly not say anything uh, when you directly ask me a question. I think what Jesus is saying here points to both word and deed. And if you're like, but Kent, it just says deed. Well, then you can go to the end of the book of Matthew. And where Jesus says in the Great Commission, hey, go now and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything I have taught you. And so as he does that, he's saying, hey, you are going to use words, but it's going to be so much more than words. The word good and good works literally means beautiful. Let your beautiful words, your beautiful works be compelling to people. And there is a way in which it has to infiltrate your whole life. I mean, that was the Great Commission. The Great Commission was go and make disciples, teaching them everything I have taught you. And the words that we constantly leave out is we constantly say, hey, go and make converts and not disciples. It's not just, hey, people who will check yes to I accepted Jesus tonight, but rather people who are laying down their life and picking up their cross daily to follow Jesus and teach everything I've taught you. This is about your whole life. The Sermon on, your, on the Mount is about your whole life. It's not about just like, okay, I just believe this and it doesn't affect my life. I mean, Jesus is clear. Hey, you have to believe this first. You have to have the faith in Jesus who is the one who redeems you. And that is when now the Holy Spirit now will go before you and give you faith to do the great works that he has set before time that you might do. If you try to go in workspace righteousness, you'll find yourself exhausted and a failure. But if you find yourself filled up by the Holy Spirit with the faith that is in Jesus and then that outpours into works, it never fails to then become your entire life. And you can't hide a beautiful life. That's in the text. He's going to say, hey, you don't, put, you know, don't be like a city on a hill. That can't be hidden. Uh, you know, or don't be like the person who lights a lamp and puts it in their basket. A lot of people think like that means, okay, now don't intentionally hide your faith. No, it's saying you can't hide your faith. If Jesus is working in you, if the Holy Spirit is moving in you and maybe making you one who is living out the kingdom, and he will, then it's just going to be increasingly more attractive to people. I mean, I don't know if you know people that have like really been walking with Jesus and not just like going to church on Sundays, but walking with Jesus for like 70 or 80 years. I mean, their lives are just beautiful. They don't have to say, oh, I follow Jesus. It's clear in everything they say and do. They have been shaped by the one that they can't get over. You can't hide it. And so he says, hey, just don't try. Don't try to round off the edges because a compelled world wants to be compelled by something. Or I should say this, an uncompelled world is longing to be compelled by something. And so it says, hey, man, like figure out every single way that you can just like live into your whole life. And I don't have time. I'm going to like list a couple here and you're just going to have to work them out in your missional communities on how you might actually do this in your life throughout this week. I mean, you might do it in your family. Or if you have a family, 
I, I said that my wife and I get together at the end of every year and we plan. And we plan by saying, hey, what's tr- what is like God gifted us with? Like, okay, we tend to be pretty relational. We host and do hospitality pretty well. Uh, we like to have fun. And, you know, we uh, just generally can encourage people well. Okay, how can we intentionally build out nights of the week where we invite our neighbors to do that to them? And our members of our MC to do that. And people that we want to see a beautiful life lived out before. And just invite them into our, our zone, you know? Invite them to where we can really shine. And maybe it's your singleness. There's a guy who goes to Selma right now um, who has spent the last six months on a mercy ship as a nurse. He had to pay every cent to be there, to get there, to live there. And now he's couch surfing, which is something you can't do when you have a wife and kids very well. And he's couch surfing because he's trying to save up every penny again so he can go back on the mercy ship and pay his way again and serve in a way that you can't others. I mean, don't just use your singleness to just live crazy off of one single income when you don't have anybody else on it. Use it to do things in the kingdom of God that you'll never have another window in your life to do. Or if you do, you won't feel good enough to do it like that. And so you can use it in your family. You can use it in your singleness. You can use it in your work. You can be compelling in the way you do your work. Whether it's your passion subject or not, know that everything you do is redeeming the world with God right now. And so everything matters. And so it doesn't matter if you're sweeping floors or if you're making deals. You are creating a kingdom mentality. And so it's not just like have good ethics and principles. Yes, do that. But also do your work in a way that's as for God and not for man. Like work crazy hard and clock out tired. And then go home and love your family and your neighbors and other people really well. There's a family that is at our church that like always makes extra food for dinner because they just want to live under the mentality that someone will drop in every single night. And that family actually, um, they were talking with a girl who, um, she actually goes, uh, she went to this congregation, now she attends one of our other congregations because she lives more in the area, but her story started here, so they forwarded me on this message, and they said, hey, she, she just sent us this message, and I thought, man, this is such a compelling picture of what, what I'm talking about today. She said this um, in the email, she's uh, deciding to be baptized, and she said, hey, I asked uh, if my friend from Soma would baptize me, and she's agreed to it. She's played such an important role in helping me take pride in my faith. Having her take part feels so perfect. And she says to them, hey, thanks to your guidance in this process, having you and your wife welcome me into your home for our meeting and for MC, missional community that is, has made me feel so welcome at home in the Soma community. I'm looking forward to continue to grow with you and the rest of our community. It doesn't really have to be really hard. It's just people with everyday activity with gospel intentionality making extra big meals so that they can invite their neighbors any day of the week. Invite people in any day. I don't know what it is for you. And that's where we get when we point to communion. We end every service there, and it's not just like a cop-out so I don't have to write outros. It's because it reminds us that as we are the light, we look to the one who is the light. Because our light is completely derivative. We don't produce it. You don't really work hard. You pray and ask God to fill you with his spirit, and then you walk in the direction of your prayer. 
and watch him fulfill what you have asked him to do in you. Because he's the one who, again, not coincidentally, as he was on the cross, darkness comes over him at, full, at the middle of the day. Because he's trying to say, hey, I am taking all of darkness onto me. But because I am eternally righteous, though it crushes him, he then rises again to show that he ultimately defeats darkness. That out of all the darkness in the world, at the end of the day, it's a really weak force. It takes one righteous man of God, who is God in the the flesh, to overcome everything. It's one spark. And it moves across his entire body. And eventually, we become the kingdom that creates a world of light in the midst of the kingdom of darkness so that it can't survive anymore. And so when you get a chance, in a moment, we're going to take communion. And that's what this represents. It represents the body and the blood shed and broken for you so that darkness might be absorbed and righteousness light might be given to you who are darkness. And so you can come forward in a moment, tear a piece off of the bread, dip it in the cup. There's a station here in the back and there's a gluten-free station here for those who do not want the darkness known in our culture as gluten in your communion. (laughs) And then as we say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't come forward right now feel comfortable to stay, to wrestle, to ask questions, to doubt, to pray with us. But don't come forward and take this meal because that's what it means. And then we will be there to pray with you or anybody else, men and women on the other side of the pipe and drape, uh, to care for you, to just pray wherever you're at right now in life. Let me pray for us now. Father God, uh, Lord, again, continue to move in your spirit and make your light shown into people's lives, into, again, real situations. Don't let this just be a pump-up pep talk that has no effect on people's lives. Lord, let us be a people that are amongst a church in this city and in this region and in this world that are experiencing you shaping us into the image of your Son and therefore becoming filled with light and one spark at a time pushing darkness out of this world till it can have no residence in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world. We ask you to come and meet with us now in the act of communion and the reminder how you have conquered darkness and spread light to all who will receive it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.